0: This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc., Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything going on at Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's secondmissionfoundation.org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content when you go to Havoc Journal. You will read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. Check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. My guest this week was Navy veteran... Storyteller, MBA holder, Charles McCaffrey. Um, I'm not going to lie. We don't cover a lot of the MBA stuff. Uh, we do cover an awful lot of his storytelling because he is a major linchpin of our upcoming Savage Wonder Ground show at Veterans Repertory Theater. So, yes, I'm going to do shameless plugs right now. SavageWonder.com. Go there. Get your ticket now. If you're in the D.C. area. April 13th, it's a Thursday night, 6 p.m., Principal Gallery in Old Town Alexandria. It's a $20 ticket. Best 20 bucks you'll ever spend. Get a little champagne, get a little grazing table, see a badass show, and it takes an hour. You'll have a great time. Anyway, Charles is a major linchpin of that show. So that's my ulterior motive for having him on the show. But Charles is also a wildly interesting dude. And his military experience is one that is really worth spending a lot of time talking about. And we do in this interview. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. We have not had a conversation like this on the show before. Um, we um, we talk, well, let me I'll get into what we talk about briefly here in a second. Um, we do talk about Savage Underground because there's no way we're not going to do that. It ended up kind of becoming a little behind the scenes thing. You guys will actually get to hear us kind of, put together some of the stuff or talk about some ideas. And I think that's kind of cool for you guys just to kind of see what we're doing and all that. And again, go fucking get tickets, savagewonder.com But, uh, when it comes to the military piece, you know, I never know how these conversations are going to go. You never know what people's motivations are, what's driven them in life. What's what chips on the shoulder they may have, what grief they carry. And with Charles, I, you know, no idea where that could go. Um, we'll find out in the interview. It is beyond fascinating. It is a story I've never heard before. And I guess I should tee it up a little bit, uh, because we are going to reference some of the stuff. So to understand his military career, we got to start with what he did for Savage Wonderground or what he's doing for Savage Wonderground. He submitted a piece to me for the Savage Wonderground called Dancing in the Dark, which you'll hear him talk about. Um, the story is essentially has three parts. It's about an army veteran, army infantry veteran, um, who is now a trucker who likes ballet and just enjoys ballet. And he ends up getting in a horrible vehicle accident and then ends up falling in love with his male physical trainer at the VA. Those are essentially the three parts of that story. And you'll hear me give Charles my feedback on what I thought of the story and how it works in the show or how it doesn't work in the show or all that in the interview. So I'm not even going to ruin that. But one of the things that I think I talk about a little bit with Charles, but I want to kind of spell out a little bit more here is um, to me, I'm trying to think how much I said of this to Charles. Anyway, um, to me, the story that he wrote was very conventional it was just kind of a conventional love story. Uh, The only thing, the first two parts of it, you're like, where's this going to go? It's really interesting. You've built this interesting character and all that. The third part where he falls in love with the physical trainer. I was like, yeah, um, not that surprising because you told me up front that he was a guy who liked ballet and had heard you taunts from other people before and all that. So the fact that he realizes he's gay at the end isn't that surprising. If he's straight and likes ballet and is a trucker, that's a pretty interesting dude. That's a lot of you know dichotomies and, and cognitive dissonance. Um, but the fact that he just ends up going, oh, well, actually, I'm gay. Well, that kind of makes sense. Not to stereotype and <laughs> say so you have to be gay to enjoy ballet, but you get my point. Um, But the other piece that bothered me, and that part I tell Charles, and you'll hear his reaction to it, and we'll talk about it um, in the interview. But the other part that I didn't voice as much was it's a very conventional story. It's a very conventional love story when you look at it through that lens. Too conventional. It's not that interesting, except, I mean, the only thing remotely interesting is that he's gay. And I definitely feel like the culture has skewed to the point of gay seems ubiquitous in our culture now. Everything's got to be gay. Um, and I say that mostly laughing. There, I do have a bone to pick with a lot of that. And I'm just because, because it's my show. I'm going to do a little bit of a stem winder on it. So um, wh- one of the things that does burn my ass about um, the the way that the West and that the United mm-hmm. States, it seems like, wants to make everything into a gay rights issue or a gay story is um, or, or is that it's, uh, do I have to get into this? I guess I should. Okay. So for me, it was a, uh, one of the major indicators was what happened last year in Afghanistan when we were going through the withdrawal. And I was very focused on getting Afghan commandos out. Many of whom I had worked with and knew personally getting them and their families out. And we were told by the U S government flat out, we are not interested in getting them out. They are too difficult to get out. They are low. They are. They are. There's a low upside to bring getting them out. They don't do anything. They're just soldiers. They're just commandos. And getting them and their families out is a righteous pain in the ass. It'll piss off the Taliban. It's very hard to do, and we don't really get anything for it. Instead, what we heard and what we got scrambled for multiple times was when other Western groups would come up on the net. For special interests Well if you have any If any of the people that you're trying to help Are gay If there are women that play sports If there's um, journalists If there's artists If there's photographers If there's people that could go for MBAs And different people had you know, There were these pots of money For Afghans to get out Based on that criteria That really pissed me off Let me be clear I don't want anybody to suffer under the Taliban. I wanted all of them out. That said, the first fucking seats on those planes should have been for our fucking allies that helped us. And that's a hill I die on. Um, That really fucking was demoralizing to us. And I thought hinted at the solipsism and self-importance of the West, the way that they viewed their priorities over what was actually important to people on the ground. That really fucking pissed me off. And that to me was a microcosm of the ubiquity of this kind of let's call it Western solipsism that I saw. And that really I did not like. Okay, why am I talking about all that? Because that to me, I was like, you know, eh, for good to a savage wonderground, you know, I I wanted to be something unique and just to not arbitrarily shoehorn a gay story in. Cause I don't think that's what it was, but it was just like, what's the upside to having this be another, you know, gay love story for no good reason. But this is why you talk to people talking to Charles, hearing his story and why he wrote it the way he did. I was like, Oh yeah. Okay. I still think it needs to be a more interesting twist in that third act. And I'm not going to tell you guys what I'm thinking of because I got to talk about with Charles. But I think there's a lot more potency. And I think Charles, I got to talk with him about it. But he gets at it in the interview. And I'm like, here's an interesting story to tell. And it's going to be fucking cool, I think, if we can pull it off. But that, but I was like, now we're not just ticking a box. We're not just it. And and talking with Charles and going, Oh shit, dude, I see why you're telling this story. Oh fuck. Yeah. Okay. Cool. bitching. let's, okay. There's something here. So that happens. (laughs) I think I was trying to make a deeper point, but anyway, that's something for you guys to, uh, just to give you a little bit of context about where I was coming from with that. And, um, and I'll, I'll, okay, let me just say one other thing because I feel like maybe I didn't, I feel like I'm going to wake up at two in the morning and go, did I say all that articulately enough? Um, for me, I, I, since this is the first time, and, and we are, Charles and I, you're going to hear, we talk a lot about gay rights in this episode, uh, which is a subject I never, you know, planned on talking about with him. But, but once it came up, it came up, and it, we just let that baby ride until we moved on from it. So let me just say this because, uh, God only knows if I'll ever get a chance to say it again. So for me, I think one of the other things that kind of um, I, I do think about with, I say what I see to be the ubiquity of of gay rights, um, or not gay rights. That's not the right word, but just inserting homosexuality or the themes about homosexuality into the culture is to me being raised in New York City, coming from a family in the arts. Homosexuality means kind of a yawn. I I, I just I don't. I'm used to it. I've been around it my whole life. As I always have joked around, if you're a New Yorker, you're kind of Jewish and gay by osmosis. You know, it's not a big mystery. You're around that all the time. What kind of irks me is I, you know, people from fucking Kansas or something. You no know, insults, you know. Please don't take offense if you're from Kansas. But just saying, uh, people that weren't exposed to it, who just watched Will and Grace and were like, "Oh, gay is a thing," and are now trying to compensate. It seems like. Um, they really pissed me off because I'm like, dude, some of us have been around this our whole lives. And you know what you discover when you're around that your whole life, you start to realize that gays, like, well, everybody else, there's some that you like, there's some that you don't like. It just comes down to the individual. I, I can't believe that's worth saying, but in this day and age, it probably is. Anyway, my point being in saying that, that uh, for me, it was definitely something that uh, that I was like, look. I don't want to treat homosexuality like it's some novel new fashion that's come out. If there's an actual amazing individual story that's unique and compelling, bitchin'. But if it's – if we're just saying gay just because that's on trend, um, eh, you know, not super interested in that. So all that is to say Charles is not on trend or I guess he is but – his story is so much more fucking interesting than just ticking a box. There's so much depth and so much resonance in his personal journey um, and parts of it that I think anybody can relate to. Uh, I think there's I, I I'm just I'm a big fan of his and I'm a big fan of what he's going to do on April 13th. So, again, if you're in fucking Alexandria, Virginia or anywhere in the D.C. area, make the trip. Come see us. We'll love to see you. You will be fucking thrilled to see it. It's going to be a badass show. Okay. I think that's all I have to say about that. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Charles McCaffrey's profile in Havoc. Welcome to the show, Charles. Thank you. Good. Thanks for having me. So you, you pulled a fast one on me for a second. I was like, dude, you have a kick ass library behind you. <laughs> and I was like, son of a bitch. She just freaking got a great screensaver. That looked <laughs> yeah. pretty badass, though. I was really stoked for a second there. It's my dream, though. <laughs> You're aspiring to have a, a, a bookcase like that. Yeah. That's, um, it's funny because I, when I was thinking about what we were going to talk about today, I was like, Man, there's, there's no shortage of topics to start with, with you. At the same time, that also makes it, I can go, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm going to be very scatterbrained throughout the interview because I want to cover so many different aspects of your life. So I'll say this, <clears throat> when you sent me your artist statement and bio for Savage Wonderground Around and you included that, uh, you know, piece of biographical information where you were like, hey, as a kid, I always had a notebook. I'd always walk around drawing, writing, doing something like that. And that's carried on. When did the military infiltrate that? How did that kid end up going into the military? Or how did that kid end up going so hard into business and getting the MBA and all that? Were those in contrast? Were those parallel lines of effort and enthusiasms for you? Or did one thing develop and then the next thing developed?
1: Uh, I, I think a lot of it was out of necessity. So the the you know carrying the journal, doing the drawing, all of that um, from very very young age. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a lot of us who join the military uh, hide that because that doesn't necessarily match with the military persona. Um, and so I was still doing it. Obviously, I had the, the good fortune to travel. And so when I traveled, I'd go to the art museums and and the cafes and, and, and all that, um, but not necessarily something that I talked too much about. Fortunately, I was I was in, I guess, what would be perceived as an intellectual part of the military with Intel and cybersecurity. So I, there's probably a little bit of yeah. I'm, I'm expected to be a bit of a, a an RC fartsy nerd mm-hmm. to begin mm-hmm. with. Sure. So so I had that benefit, um, but it really wasn't until several years after the military um, that I started picking that up again from the uh, a wanting to do it like I did prior to that, but also feeling that I needed to do it, that I needed to get the stuff out of the brain and out of the heart and everything else that was, was building up. Of course. Um, Interestingly enough. So I, you know, pursued the MBA started a small business with a a partner, went and taught small business for veterans. um, And, about the same time, so I want to say about 2015 or so, um, I was starting up the Veteran Business Outreach Center for the Mid-Atlantic under the SBA. Um, Megan Ogilvy at Dog Tag Bakery was starting the Dog Tag uh, mm-hmm. Inc. and the fellows along with Father Curry and, and the folks there. Sam Pressler was starting Armed Services Arts Partnership. Uh, all in the D.C. area. And so we just kind of got to know each other. We were supporting each other's events when I was teaching business classes and people were like, hey, I, I hate talking in public, which I don't blame them. Uh, I am an introvert. Um, they were like, hey, what do you do? And I was like, hey, so take a comedy class, take a storytelling class. Uh, and like all good veterans, they called me on it and they said, so which one have you done? and i hadn't done any of them yet uh, i had always just been an audience member and so i got involved and uh, i think one of the first stories maybe you saw the the video of me telling the story mm-hmm. of being hit and having a concussion and going to an art museum so that was the very first story i ever told on stage um and and it's all uh all, all from that all the stuff that i'm doing now
0: when did you go into, I'm going to back all the way up because I want to unpack so
1: much of what you just said. When did you go into the Navy? Uh, so I did uh delayed enlistment. Um, <laughs> so it was 87. And then I joined as soon as I graduated in 88. Why? What was pushing you into the Navy? Um, so a couple of things. One is four older brothers uh, who had uh, three of whom had joined the military, joined the Navy. So my my father was actually Air Force uh, and then Air National Guard uh, by the time I came around. Sure. Uh, and and we kind of all joke about the story that, you know, he he saw the military and, and saw uh, did not go to Vietnam, but saw everything that was going on. So in the early 70s, when his oldest sons were looking to join the military, it was like, hey, I, I encourage you to join the military, maybe not the army or the marines right now. Um and so we joined the Navy. Four of us of the seven kids joined the Navy. And then there's about a 30-something-year difference between my oldest brother and my little brother. And so when the little brother wanted to join uh all of us Navy guys were like join the Air Force they put in the golf course in the commissary first uh and so he did he joined the join the Air Force so so there was the the military history within the family um but also you know we're, we were middle class growing up in Montana seven kids um you know stay-at-home mom dad worked um, mm-hmm. there was not a whole lot of money uh, for college education and things like that. And so that, that was the second part of it was to, to get my degree and, and, or at this point, several degrees that (laughs) has, has paid for it. Right. When you, uh, enlisted, did you,
0: were you dead set on a certain rating or a certain MOS or whatever, or were you just like, Hey, I'm here to get as many bennies as I can, and I'm going to bounce out as soon as I possibly can.
1: So the the yeah the initial plan was at least the four years get the get the GI bill. Mm-hmm. I I had a fairly decent ASVAB score, and so um, a lot of opportunities were there for me. I think at the time they were really pushing nuke power, uh, but that that did not have an interest for me. But they mentioned so at the time it was called cryptology. They don't call it that anymore, uh, but that sounded really interesting to me. I I like math. Um hate, hate to say it but I read the the James Bond books and watched the movies growing up. Um and so that's uh I'm very thankful that that's what I I went into. Um and that was your whole career. Your whole career you never changed from that really, right? I I didn't. Um wow. and and yeah, I was told I would, you know, when I bounced from enlisted officer that I wouldn't probably stay in the same community but I I ended up doing so. Wow. And so yeah so so but that but that uh enlistment was a minimum of 6 years okay uh, as opposed to a 3 or 4 year enlistment because the amount of school that you go yep. through and so and did you get um, language out of that uh i did not i okay. i did as an officer apply to go to dli um and they saw my score and said stick to english you may pick it up eventually um but any other language forget it so so i no i was on the um the maintenance side so mm-hmm. okay. um and i mean god when i when i first joined we were that was still paper tape and oh. the punch cards and i remember troubleshooting by flipping switches and in, in binary and entering the instructions that way so i mean oh. it was it was yeah it was really old school uh, you know, Manuel Morris was still around and, and, and all that. Um, and did you like it? Did you enjoy it while you're, I did. I love that part of it. Okay. I, I absolutely love that part of it. Um, and my schools and because of the equipment I was working on was almost, a, almost two years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I was already in E5 by the time I was huh. coming out of school, wow. uh, um, but I you know, probably the best bit of advice that I got from a, a senior NCO who fortunately saw more in me than I think I I saw in myself at the time because um, he did encourage me to apply for an officer program and and, mm-hmm. and everything. Um, but one of the things he he said was um, never say no. He's like, if, if an opportunity presents itself, whether it's a duty station or an educational or, or anything, he's like, just just take it. He's like, because the, these opportunities are not presented like this in the civilian world. Um, and so when somebody mentioned uh, ROTC, I, I applied not really having even thought about college and, and what I mm. would do um, and got picked up for that. And that was during your first enlistment your first I was starting my first enlistment. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So then
0: it, what happened? You went to college and just in, went to ROTC for the next
1: 4 years? I did. Yeah. So um yeah, went to went to Georgia Tech. Uh it was 4 years of college. Obviously because I was still in my enlistment if I did not complete college, I went back to uh being enlisted.
0: And did they uh, extend the contract because you're in college now and you're not at a duty station?
1: Not to the best of my knowledge, um, I'm sure there was a lot of paperwork that got shuffled around. I think it was more of the if if I if I make it through, which would have put me at the six year mark uh graduating college, then all is forgiven and I just start my contract as, a, as an officer right but if I don't I go back and and to the best of my knowledge of the 14. Men and women that were prior enlisted that started my year, I was the only one who did not go back. Um, I I was the one who did the four years in college and and got the commission. Uh, Interestingly enough, so wanting to stay with kind of the cryptology world, I started as a computer engineer uh, at Georgia Tech and absolutely hated it. Absolutely hated it. I'm sure. Um, yeah. And they had just started or were about to start a program called history, technology and society. Um, so a very both technical and liberal arts based. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of the charter under which Georgia Tech operates, it it, it is a uh, has to be a science degree, a bachelor's science degree. Um, so. So people used to joke that I have a BS degree in liberal arts from Georgia Tech.
0: (laughs) Seems like a made joke. So what I don't understand is for you, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the impression I got from your bio was that you were an artsy kid to begin with, and it's rare that an artsy kid gravitates towards these mathematics based fields and then ends up even looking at a Georgia Tech. You know, knowing that you're gonna to have to get a BS degree as opposed to a BA. And so you're kind of I guess what I'm getting at is did you feel like you were setting yourself up for failure by looking at these things that maybe you weren't wired to go to? Or were you somebody that really could pivot? And you're like, hey, I can do the art thing and then I can pivot and I can, you know, go hard at math. And maybe it's not computer engineering, but it's it's something in that realm. I can do
1: math science and it doesn't scare me. Uh I, I wanna say that I was too green to to know better Hmm. to know what my limitations were or or my interests or anything. It was um this is something that interests me. I'm gonna try it. Okay. Um and very quickly (laughs) with the computer engineering degree realized this was not uh what I was interested in. And so you know they had this whole new curriculum which I love history Um, But I also do like the science side of things, the technical side, so I could take, you know, whatever type of technical classes I could Mm -hmm. take. Um, A lot of the history classes were like on the history of technology, so Mm -hmm. the the technology behind uh, a a number of things. So my, you know, was one of the few degree programs that you had a um, undergraduate thesis to write. Uh, and mine was on the rise of the hacker community hmm. um, and, and the whole history behind it and everything. Um, and, you know, what was going on in the in the mid 80s, early 90s uh, in computer development and hacker tech, uh, hackers and things like that, not even envisioning the whole cybersecurity aspect of sure. it. Sure. Um, but I was also taking classes in philosophy and psychology. And, and so it was, it was just, it was a real eclectic mix, um, that I enjoyed. And that, that definitely, uh, was more, more my style. Did you find yourself taking well to advanced education?
0: Like, did you feel at home at college where you could take the wide variety of classes? Did that, it seems like that would be appealing to you.
1: It it is. And I mean, in my, mid 40s going back and doing my MBA um, probably was the the most fun because I I had the experience to begin with. I didn't have to worry about developing study habits or anything because I'd I'd always kind of been a a lifetime learner. Mm. Uh, And so I really could just enjoy the classes uh, and had some just amazing professors. Mm. Uh, hated economics uh as an undergrad and absolutely loved it with the the uh MBA wow. professor so interesting wow um and i had you know i was looking at uh, so i had started the the deli uh in central pennsylvania with a, with a friend of mine that i met up there um so i had a little bit of small business background i knew i was interested in in that um wanted to get out of government contracting and so was doing what a lot of people in DC do which is consult um so I I kind of leveraged my MBA into my Consulting business so gotcha. I would, gotcha. I would you know I'd have a mm-hmm. uh, an assignment for a class and I would reach out to a company um do the assignment and and get a little business on the side from it so gotcha gotcha yeah. so
0: when you were in college getting your bachelor's was there certain to be an inkling of where this was all leading did you have any idea of what of what the end game was
1: for you were you no. thinking okay all right no nope, no nope, not at all um just one foot in front of the other yeah I, I i again back to the advice i got i was just um taking advantage of opportunities that that presented uh, okay. themselves but i mean if, even today i i mean i i Turned fifty three over the weekend, and I I still say I, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> right, right, and that seems like that's common. That
0: seems like that's common in the in our community. I feel like a lot of guys, especially it seems like in the early fifties, go because I've had a career, and holy shit, um, I'm still not fully fleshed out. I got a whole bunch of other stuff I want to do. And I think there's a big chunk of the veteran community that is just kind of burgeoning with ideas, and they they kind of bubble up, and they're like, "I've been able to really execute one specific facet of who I am, but there's all these other things I want to get to and I want to try out." I I I feel like I've seen or heard that multiple times before. Is that true for you too, or is this just? Oh
1: yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, all the time. I mean the. Having taken classes and worked with folks with Armed Services Arts Partnership, um, with the Veteran Business Center, now with the the Veteran Career Program. Um, yeah, and I, I, you know, right now I, I can think of a couple people in my business class that are trying to take their hobbies, which had absolutely nothing to do with what they did in the military, uh, and turn it into a business, you yeah. know, so... Yeah. Absolutely. No, that makes sense.
0: So when you got back into the active navy after college, um
1: what'd you do? Where'd you go? Yeah, so uh did get picked up to go back into cryptology mm-hmm. um and then over the over the years it was, you know, uh became the command and control for, command and control warfare officer, the information warfare officer. Uh, I don't even know what they call call it anymore. Um I know the warfare pin for it is, uh, just as big of a mess, uh, as the community. Cause it's like got lightning bolts and wings and waves and, and, you know, so it's, it's kind of a conglomeration of that, but I, I was very fortunate. I did, my first tour was in Scotland, hmm. uh, at a comm com site there, um, that eventually shut down, um. But I mean, that was both a great mission and great people and a great location to go to go out and do things. Yeah. Um, went to a ship after that uh, out of Norfolk, where my brother was also stationed. Um, didn't really spend a whole lot of time there. We did our workups and then we deployed um, as part of what's called Standing Naval Forces Atlantic or SNFL. Uh So we deployed. We actually had a Dutch ship that was the command ship, Hmm. um, but we had a Spanish ship, a Belgian ship, a French ship, um, and it alternated um, throughout the year, as uh, or throughout the six month deployment. um, We were one of the most consistent ships because it was we're used to a six-month deployment whereas other navies were maybe shorter. Oh interesting. Um but we did stops in the Caribbean and the Mediterranean and, and England and and would you and take leave with those different crews? Did you get to know them? Um so we did uh <laughs> So my my commanding officer picked up that I, I was a little artsy fartsy. Uh and so he made me what was called the cross-pollination officer. And so I was my job in addition to what I was doing was to make sure that members of our crew got to go for a couple of days over to another ship and have their folks onto our ship. Um it actually made me more popular then uh, and got me around more than the uh, the commanding officer so when the other captains had gifts they gave them to me cuz i you know was was helping their crew and sure. uh, and everything sure. so i did that um and then like i said we you know when we were pulling into ports it was show the flag and 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 doing that um we did stay in northern spain for i want to say two and a half weeks. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so that's when I took leave and, and traveled through Spain and Portugal. Yeah. Um, and then I was back home when, when we, when we pulled into, um, well, we pulled into Tilbury and then took the trains up to to London. Um, you know, that was my old stomping ground. I used to go down to to London all all the time. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of, um, out and about. And so, you know, in the artist statement, when I talk about meeting people and seeing things, that, that was a big part of it. Yeah. How did
0: you find the officer life? Um, was it, you hadn't been enlisted, I guess, for all that long. So did you feel a culture shock or did it come naturally to you to now be in charge?
1: I uh I, I wanna say it came naturally um and maybe you've heard this as well, but I heard a lot that that prior enlisted either make the very best officers or the absolute worst. um and there's no kind of middle ground with that um I I hopefully uh, was not the absolute worst um but I really took it seriously um that that the the officer's charge is to take care of the troops and let the troops take care of the mission right um and i was very fortunate to have good uh senior ncos and 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 just good people in in general and so i my thought was to to keep every everybody uh else off their back uh and all the bureaucratic and stuff i i would handle that and let them do the job and then I think because of my experience going through ROTC and, and everything, I, I brought that same mentality that I, it was like, you know, if you if you want to be enlisted and you want to stay enlisted and you want to be good at your your rate, uh, that's great. Uh if you want to get your, your degree, I, I wholly encourage it. If you want to do an officer program, I'll wholly encourage it. It, it was um I, I was really all about the uh, the opportunities and making sure that they Um, had the opportunities and had the chance to take advantage of those opportunities. So um, I enjoyed it. Did you find that now you were thinking of it as a
0: career as like, Hey, I think I need to get 20 years and I'm kind of on that course now, or was it still taking it day by day?
1: I think still taking it day by day. Um, You know, my, my brother uh, was retiring from the military and so I was seeing what retirement was and and everything, and I mean fairly young, yeah, mid forties or whatever. Um, and so I, it was in the back of my mind, um, but I think also I, I don't know that I was ever the military kid, right? Uh, growing up, so so it was kind of those. It, it, it could go either way, um, but I also think. Like a lot of folks, I didn't know what I would do if I got out of the military. Yeah. Yeah. What did you think? How did your family, I guess,
0: look at your military service? Or I guess a better question is, how did you rate your military service looking at your family members, having all these other brothers that were in the military? really like... Hey, I got to at least do more time than this guy just so like I've ticked that box nobody can give me shit about this. Like was there any sense of that cuz that's a that's a pretty strong family dynamic to have that much military service in the family.
1: It, it is. So of the four of us who joined the navy, um so my my older brother, uh oldest brother did I want to say did one tour and left, uh enlisted. So my second oldest brother, he Started enlisted, went through, uh, I believe, ROTC as well, um, got his commission. And he, interestingly enough, kind of stayed in the yeoman PAO community hmm. uh, his whole career. Um, my next oldest brother and I were both enlisted at the same time. And when I picked up a four-year ROTC program, he applied for a two-year OCS program. So he would never have to call me, sir. <laughs> Got you. yep um, Okay. That so, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, And so, but they all, um, both my older brother that and him that got commissions went uh, uh um oh initially I think they went surface warfare, so surface warfare officer, um, and then went pao. They both went into to pao, and uh and then I came along and had this exotic career that was behind the green curtain and everything. Uh went to Scotland, went to you know, all, all these places. So um I, I think a part of them not necessarily jealous as much as he's not in the real Navy. Um, uh, you're not supposed to see that much of the world. Yeah. He's kind of living the, the, you know, <laughs> uh cruise ship type of Navy, even when I was on the ship, you know, they're like, you don't even get a traditional deployment. You, you, you deploy with NATO and, and go and see exotic ports. So right. um, I, I think there was that, but I think uh, nonetheless, across the board, just, uh proud of what all of us were doing. That's fair. When you were traveling, what
0: areas I mean we talked about Scotland and Portugal, Spain. Was did Europe really stand out to you? Did that have the most impact or were there other places that also really made a deep imprint on you in a way that, you know, left a lasting impression?
1: Um, Europe did because it was shortly after the fall of, of the Soviet Union. And so going to places like Berlin where part of the wall was still up uh, and seeing that. and um, you know kind of seeing what what we had all been fed uh, in the military was that democracy would triumph over communism. Uh, and, and actually seeing it and, and feeling like maybe I had a small part, uh, to do with that. Um, hmm. I think that at least at that point, that was the, um, had the biggest impact.
0: Gotcha. Um, when did you actually in your mind make the decision that, yeah, this is, this is going to be a career. This is going to actually happen.
1: Uh, I don't know that I ever did.
0: Really? Yeah. When 9-11 happened, you were still in,
1: right? I was. Uh where were you? DC. Okay. Uh so I was in DC. Uh heard heard about the first plane. We were all watching when the second plane hit. Um, and then I was I believe scheduled to be at the Pentagon. Mm-hmm. uh and as I was walking out, saw the smoke coming from the Pentagon and, and went back into the office. Um, cause I knew whatever, whatever I was doing over there was not happening. Um, yeah. and then because of the work I was doing and everything, and because of our location and a number of things, which was in an unsuspecting location, we kind of became a Intel headquarters. Um, so, um, yeah, that's that that's where I, I was in the DC area. Was
0: that a um I mean, what did that day mean to you? Was that a day where you're like, "Holy shit, things just got real?" Or were you was there a sense of um excitement that okay, I get to there's going to be a game after this. We actually get to take the field for real? Or 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 was it just um more blasé than that? I don't know. What was your reaction
1: to it? No, I think it was um you know, when when I was coming up and and the job i did in scotland was all very much focused on the soviet union right um and and historically looking at world war one world war two you know the 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 superpowers and everything that was the that was the war and and the warfare we had prepared for um and i think it was more of uh and I hate it when people say this, but it, it was kind of, Holy shit, everything just changed.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, cause we, we, you know, kind of got broadsided there and, and we're not sure who the enemy was. I mean, certainly in retrospect, people had been talking about it, uh, right. for quite some time, um, and not necessarily listening. Um, so there was, uh, I, I think there was a bit of excitement or exhilaration that, that, you know because something had happened but also some apprehension of uh what do we do what did you think it was going to mean for you um i uh i i think it it didn't really impact me from the standpoint of um I, I thought it was, we can, we can, you know, I'd always been kind of at a safe distance, collecting mm-hmm. the intel and, and everything mm-hmm. like that. Um, obviously, in my time in the military, we had never had a battle with Russia. Um, although I knew, you know, Marines and, and Army and in places like, you know, Somalia and, and, and Beirut and things like that, um, but didn't, did not ever conceive that it would become a um everybody deploying and so so long of a um team team level warfare right. right um and deployment to to these countries
0: so you thought it was going to be kind of spot fires low intensity conflict kind of thing where maybe we're you know putting some elements in play but we're not full scale Forward deploying.
1: Yeah. Not, not to the extent that, that it eventually became.
0: Okay. Did, uh, emotionally that day, was there thinking of like Henry V, you know, that, uh, I'm going to paraphrase, but the, the, the phrase of, uh, you know, uh, men asleep in bed right now will think themselves cursed that they were not here that day. Was there a sense that, Hey, I'm already in. I'm I'm here, I'm ready for this. I don't I don't have to suddenly think about joining the military or am I going to or am I not going to? What am I giving up? What job would I have to leave? And all that. You're already there, you're primed, you're ready, and you're th- you're the ones that have, were on duty that day and ready to go. Was there a sense of pride about that? Or was that not, not really crossing your
1: mind? Um, I I, uh, I I think maybe two parts of that. One was um, uh, yep, so I'm already in, had been in for a while. I knew my job and now it was shifting to job uh, the job to a new uh, adversary um, and and trying to figure that out. But I think also it was the um, I've been in for a while. Why did we not pick up on this? How did, how did we not avoid this from happening? Especially given the community I was in, we're supposed to be the ones that hear about this stuff ahead of time. Um, And, you know, had never i i remember being in scotland and having uh, uh somebody from the nsa or an admiral within naval security group or something like that talking about um you know the uh, about the these people who live in caves mm-hmm. uh and and fight and everything and how our advanced technology was was going to uh Overwhelm them and just thinking how how do you fight against an enemy that goes to a Radio Shack uh, and picks up a minor technology and uses it against us when we're we're this advanced technology and and we're not sure how all this is gonna gonna happen um, and and again I was in the community. You know, very early on, I guess when we talk about cybersecurity and everything, and, and I know in briefings we would talk about electronically taking out of Target, but but leaving it intact so we could use it as a source of information down the road. And and then someone in like the army going, but I prefer it to be a crater. <laughs> uh, and and that's what it became, right? Um so yeah. A lot of, I think a lot of mixed emotions on, on how all this was going to, going to happen.
0: Did you end up deploying to Afghanistan or Iraq?
1: I, I did not. Um, and this is kind of, I, I started dating somebody, um, just prior to 9-11, um, and, and he did, um, deploy and, and, uh, was, was killed over there. Um, and so that, that's what kind of took, took the turn in my career.
0: Tell me about that. So first off, look, can we back up for a second? Just because I think I don't, I I want to make sure we don't breeze past this. Just like, you know, there's, there's too many, uh, points to dive into. Talk about being gay in the military before don't ask, don't tell was overturned. I mean, just that experience and, and, and what that meant to you and, and with that relationship, I mean, to have that relationship in those years.
1: Yeah. Um, (laughs) A very good friend of mine who's a marine aviator, I think he summed it up best. He said, uh, I served under don't, uh, and I was okay with that. He goes, I served under don't ask, don't tell. I'm okay with that. Um, I might have a problem if it becomes mandatory. Um, (laughs) And and so, you know, it's one of those things where uh, growing up, it was a very different um perspective of what it meant to be gay, um and and a lot of misconceptions about it. So that um whatever feelings I had, I was like, well, I don't know what that feeling is, but it's not gay. Mm-hmm. Right. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you know, um, and then I I remember very vividly before don't ask, don't tell, being passed. And this would have been probably my junior year in ROTC, uh, if not the senior year, my last year, um, we had to sign a pledge. It was a very specific pledge that we pledged that we were not homosexual, that we were not engaged in homosexual behavior. Um, And I think the leadership knew Don't Ask, Don't Tell was coming along and they wanted to do Something that they couldn't do after that legislation was passed, mm-hmm. um, and by by this point, I had an inkling uh, about myself, and but still signed it uh, with kind of no hesitation because it's it's also the my my personal life is none of the military's yeah. business yeah. because because I don't make my personal life the military's business either, right? So. Yeah. Yep. um have have always and and even to this day uh very much a separation between the work I do and and my private life um and so um and so I think that maybe that's part of the reason why the military as a career was never anything that was cemented was because I I did not consider the military to be my entire life um that there were things and so, so of course as as things progressed and you know the debates about don't else don't tell and, mm. and everything and pros and cons and everything and and some self realizations and and everything um maybe a little bit of nervousness but it was also the you know um again I, I, and probably na be naive is well but but that's my personal life and it's never going to come into mm. play in the military um, and, and then, and you'll appreciate this. So sure enough, I go to, a an art opening at the principal gallery and that's where I meet my, my boyfriend.
0: Really? Yeah. Jesus. You really have some history with principal
1: gallery. Yeah. No kidding. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jesus Christ. Wow. Yeah. So, so, um, yeah, walked in, uh, and, and I, I've, I've told this story on stage as, as well. Um you know, saw him, he was with a, a girl that I thought was his, his date. Um, and, and I was, I was always like, yeah, cause you know, that's where you find Marines, uh, that you end up dating is at art galleries. <laughs> um, and then we just, uh, uh, couldn't, couldn't be more different. There was probably an eight year difference, him being younger than I was, um, infantry Marine, um, a little bit taller a little bit well built um but we kind of had the same mentality of um there's the military life and then there's us uh as individuals and so we were very much homebodies we you know when when he wasn't out training or i wasn't traveling so i was doing of all things government uh systems acquisitions Right. So government contracting and uh but from the military side. So I was traveling quite a bit as well. But when we weren't, um, I mean, we were just homebodies. That's a
0: really interesting dynamic because I think in this day and age, I think there's a lot of not just you know, in the military, but I think in all facets of life, that everything's holistic. That if you're Whatever your interests are, you have to bring that to everything you are. If you have a cubicle, then you, your cubicle is decorated with bumper stickers about every single thing that you care about, whether it's football, whether it's I like, got a Packers fan, I've got to have this up, you know, whatever. It just seems like, um, and I think there's a misconception with folks in the military that when you draw ba- set boundaries and you have that division of your personal life and your business life. There's a real necessity for that because the military is a lifestyle. It's not a job. And I think a lot of civilians don't understand that. And they're like, well, you should just be, you should bring your whole self to everything. And it's like, well, not, not really, because I got to set boundaries, maybe even artificially, because if I don't, the job is already infringing on boundaries. It's already going to move me to different places. And I'm going to be, you know, my, my personal and, and professional lives are going to be colliding a
1: whole lot. Am I off on that? Is there anything? No, I, that I'm no, I think that? you're absolutely right. Um, and, you know, even after, uh, after military service and I was, you know, working for a university, which tends to be very liberal minded for the most part, um, I just didn't think it was anybody's business. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I was like, look, you get me for eight hours. Right. <laughs> Right, um, and and that is just time I am borrowing to you because I want a paycheck. Um, but when that time is done, uh, I have other things that I want to do, and and people I want to be with, and and things like that. Um, not really a sense of shame or anything like that. It's just, you know, yeah. you have boundaries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can I compartmentalize things. Now, some of that is 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 also you know. Bad, um, you know. When when he was killed, um, we were still under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So um, I got to sit with the family because I was a friend of the family. But uh, other than a few members of of his group, uh, most people didn't know that we had been in a relationship for uh, about three and a half, four years. Wow. Um, and and then. You know, any sort of talking about how I'm feeling about things or or anything like that, um, obviously can't go to the military uh, and have that conversation. Say I want to talk to a Navy shrink about something because uh, right. that right. would be that would be telling. Um, Did you worry about your clearance at all? Was that? Oh yeah. Issue? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, I worried about all that, um, and you know. Uh, full disclosure that that uh i i made some very bad decisions when it came to Mm. self-medication because i was keeping all that inside and trying to keep up a persona and still having the you know the mentality of hey i'm the officer i have troops um and i need to take care of them first um and um while this other stuff personally is, is, is going on. Uh, and unfortunately the two of them eventually clashed and, and uh, that, that was when I knew I needed to to leave. Did you, i it's, it's funny. The thought that keeps
0: coming to me while you're saying all this is how not Gen Z you are. <laughs> right. I, I feel like, I feel like that would be um, like you were making decisions of a, of a Gen Xer in a way that that a Gen Zer would not have made those decisions for better or for worse. Not casting aspersions in either direction. Just um, it, it's so funny because it's not it's the kind of stoicism that you don't see a lot of. I guess will be a way nowadays, or you don't hear lauded a lot. But there is also a price to pay with that. And that there is, that it's, you know, nothing's a hundred percent, nothing's a guaranteed win in that. Um, Would your relationship with him have been official? Had you been able to make it official? Would it have gone further than that? Or was it progressing along as much as it needed to at that point?
1: Oh, no. I mean, if, if, um, if we had been together after the repeal and, um you know legalization of marriage and everything we would have taken those steps okay Okay. uh yeah absolutely at at a at a certain point that was comfortable for us it wasn't necessarily the day one after uh you know the the appeal that or repeal that that we would have jumped into things but um we we would have yeah again assuming we were still together dating right
0: sure 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 yeah yeah of course um So, I mean, I only say that because, I mean, that's significant, I mean, at that point. And for you, I imagine you weren't even notified of his death right away, right? It kind of came to you
1: second or third hand, right? So, so actually, I knew first because I had access to message traffic. So, I was still active duty, working the comms. I had message traffic. So, I saw it the day it happened. Jesus. and was not, again, out of a sense of duty. And, and sometimes I look back and things and it was like, well, how stupid was that? But I did not tell his parents until his parents were officially notified, even though I knew sure. several days in advance. Um, yeah. But that's the military side of you. That is like, the military right, side. Keeping, keeping all everything
0: in good order. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, what did that? At that moment, I'm just asking because I've, I've never walked a mile in these shoes, so I'm I'm just curious what that was like for you. Would, did every throw everything into relief? That suddenly it was like, oh, even though I've been keeping my personal life and my and my business life separate, um, this is really colliding in a way that is significant and that's moving the needle more than I would have anticipated.
1: No, I I don't think I realized that until several years after I left the military. Um because I, you know, be, because of things that had happened, I was wor- again worried about my my clearance and my career mm. and everything yeah. like that and uh you know, I mentioned earlier about not knowing what you're going to do after the military. Yeah. Um, I, I feel very fortunate that I was able to transition from like the crypto cybersecurity side of things to the small business side, which has allowed me to have a second career. Um, and it, it honestly wasn't until working with the folks at ASAP and, and telling that first story. So the first story, I knew I wasn't getting up on stage and telling a serious story right yeah uh it was i although i mean getting a concussion is a serious story that were you know getting a concussion and going and acting like you're a docent (laughs) at a museum is (laughs) uh is a whole other whole other thing right um but eventually through the conversations that i had and working with other people and everything i i was like i i I think I'm ready to tell this story. Um, and that was, you know, getting up on a stage first, um, in front of maybe a couple hundred people and then eventually a couple thousand people and telling that story. It's like every, every time I'm coming out again and I don't know what people's response is going to be, uh, to it. Um, the point now where i think most people have seen the story uh, mm-hmm. or or something and know it and and so um it is kind of out there and i get asked from time to time to tell that story or parts mm-hmm. of it and kind of the what it's like um and i think that's when it finally so interestingly enough that's when it probably collided was was me having the understanding that so this was going on, and I was trying to be a good uh, sailor, and having all this um, shit, other shit going on in my life, and and being self destructive and everything. Um, that's what was causing all of this uh, type of thing, or that that was what was going on, and and that was probably when I felt the most free. Was oh. it was like it was like look at at almost 50 now i have come out um and um i am still alive right um i i i did not uh, get struck by lightning uh for coming out and and having a, a a relationship like everyone else has a relationship and and everything like that. So it it it's been fairly recently. Um yeah and and so probably I I will so I've I've always kind of considered myself a happy go lucky type of person. Um but this is probably the happiest I've been in my life is the, the last couple of years.
0: That is something I think um, it's fine. There's so much I want to ask and I'm, I'm I'm trying to pick which lane to go down with it. Um, I have to imagine that that in and of itself is a great showcase and a great example of why art is important to the warrior. And I say this all the time. I'm like, I don't want to replace warriors with artists, but you got to walk the warrior path or you don't have to, but if you do walk the warrior path, art is a help to you. It doesn't need to replace the warrior side or the things you've done. It's no, I walked this and now I can unpack. And art has that ability to unpack things in a healthy way. Is that how you feel? Or do you feel like now with this self-realization and self-actualization, let's call it, do you feel like you would have made different choices from the get-go in life?
1: Um yes. Um and but but interestingly enough, I think the only the only choice that I would would consider uh the biggest one, I I, I probably would have made the choice to make the military a career. Right. Um, or or that's the only thing I wish I had been able to accomplish now, looking back mm. um then and, and having finished that out. But you know, I look back on like the poetry that I wrote or the paintings or drawings or whatever that I did, um, when I was still in the closet. And I it's like, yeah, it's pretty obvious what I was trying to say in this poem, but I thought I was being clever. Mm. Uh, by writing it in poetry, mm. um but it was it's pretty pretty clear uh what's what's getting said. And so I I so even though I didn't realize it, I was unpacking uh the the emotions and the internal feelings and everything through my writing and through the artwork. um and now I just uh, I, I can be a little less self-confident uh, or self-conscious about when i paint something um that it's like yep so this is exactly the story i am saying with this painting um or with this with this poem um
0: that makes a lot of sense yeah that makes a lot of sense um do you feel like it's a natural jumping off point to do more art painting poetry writing storytelling or do you feel like it's all kind of been leading up to these moments of catharsis realization what have you
1: yeah i'm some of my friends really hate the fact that i am a you know um if something happens it happens for a reason <laughs> uh i'm i i am not i would not consider myself a religious person uh but i there have just been so many times where i've been like why did that happen and then maybe a year later i'm like oh because this happened, eventually this, this thing happened. Um, and so I, I think I am exactly where I'm supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think it is. And there's, you know, there's, there's times if nothing else, I, I think I am more feel a little more hurried um, mm-hmm. because now there is 50 something years of stories mm-hmm. that I'm trying to get out in how mm-hmm. many amount of time I, much time I've got left right um and and everything reminds me now of a story that that I need <laughs> to tell and and, and everything mm-hmm. uh and I'm just not that fast at writing or or anything like that I you know there's one painting it probably took me 10 years uh, mm-hmm. before I actually had it done to the point where i i liked it um but the be- i think the best part about this is is i can tell my story either directly or through telling a different story so with the piece that i'm working on for the for the april event mm-hmm. uh there is a lot of that coming out uh in that um and so there are some, some lines within that story that are exactly what I've written in a journal about something mm-hmm. that happened to me at a particular time. Mm-hmm. Um and so so there's there's that fun aspect of it um as well.
0: I'm trying to think if this is gonna sound like an incredibly obvious question or if it's actually got any kind of depth and and uh cleverness to it. Uh do you how how much at the forefront of your thought and your art is the identity now of being gay, being that, hey, I came out, I have this sense of freedom. I think I need to run with that for a little bit. I think I've got more that I need to say about that, and that needs to be there. Or are you like, is, is it more of a sense of, um, hey, I see that about myself, and now I can just apply that lens, that clarity to anything else in life, and I'm just telling those stories in whatever form or fashion they take.
1: Does that yeah, kind of make I th- sense? I think it's I think it's the latter. Um yeah. because I, you know, I still do a lot of like landscapes painting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just like being able to do the landscape. Um, but for lack of a better word, if I want to do a gay uh portrait uh or 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 figure or something like that um i i don't have the hesitation anymore uh
0: what does that mean what did you mean by gay portrait so i mean that like i never would have thought of a heterosexual portrait so i'm trying to think what's a gay portrait
1: (laughs) well yeah so to me that would be me as a guy doing a painting of a nude guy okay um uh you know not necessarily gay because there are have been heterosexual painters who have done sure. male nudes sure. uh, but to me that to to me again from where I came from it's like okay well something's going on there uh, uh-huh. okay type of thing. so
0: letting the attraction filter out in yes. other words yeah. okay gotcha yeah. Got and,
1: and being okay with it um
0: That's stri- I- that sorry that just strikes me everybody at vet rep makes fun of me all the time because I I always say, as a parallel to so many questions we get asked about different subjects, I always be like, "Well, it's like the Supreme Court in pornography. I know it when I see it, and that literally begs the question: of, When does that become pornographic, and when is that just straight art? Because yeah. what 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 is that line? Anyway, that's just what that made me think of because I say that line literally four times a week. Anyway, so sorry. No, and, uh, there, but but, yeah. but
1: I think the other benefit that has come out of it is um, being able to do things for others and kind of feel like I can take the brunt of any criticism and and what I mean by that mm. is so with the work that I'm doing now as as a um career professional right helping um any any member of the military find find a career um, sure. with a focus on people with spinal cord injury and disease who maybe have higher barriers um We put on weekly webinars on different aspects of career and and small business and things like that, Um, and being able to host a webinar on the struggles of gay veterans um, who are out and there's still discrimination allowed in the workplace or there's legislation trying to get passed in certain states to allow, you know, it to to occur or just just talking about, you know, you you have gay veterans um, who do not have services at the VA that really would be beneficial Um, and being able to host an event on that and say, so let's have a conversation about this. And here's my story. And this is this is why I think it's important. Um, And if somebody comes back and says, well, I, I don't think that's an appropriate conversation that I can say, well, I I don't really care. Hmm. I don't care if you think it's appropriate. Um, If it helps just one person with a struggle or with something else and and to get themselves back on the feet, we're, we're going to go ahead and do it. Um, And so But but that's just across the board. We have done sessions on like justice involved veterans and getting them back into the workforce. And, you know, it's it's kind of the military mentality that, you know, either you're perfect or you're you're crap. Right. Right. Zero tolerance on on anything. And it's it's like the number of veterans who have some sort of legal entanglement or incarceration. And and it's like. Okay, but that should not haunt them for the rest of their life. We want them to be productive members of society. Um, have, what do we do? How do we offer it? And so, I think it comes out in in that respect um, more than anything.
0: Where do you see um, the problems for gay veterans right now? I'm saying just because you brought that up, where where are where are those problems right now that you see?
1: Um, I, I think the biggest thing is, and and I've seen some some amazing advancements. Like, so I mean, the VA actually having on their website programs for the LGBTQ community, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and for that to be posted, obviously, on the Veterans Administration website, um, gives a little bit of credence that it's it's okay, right? And it's okay to to seek help. Um, I, I think the biggest um, you know, I, I I think it's there's a mentality that once a law changes, it's the way it's going to stay forever. Right. So the repeal of don't ask, don't tell mm-hmm. or the overturning of of gay marriage. Right. Um, and just calling it marriage and treating it as marriage like anything else. Um, I I think we're like, yep. OK, so we we've now crossed that. That hurdle. We've jumped that hurdle. Um, and unfortunately seeing that, well, even 50 years later, Supreme court decisions can be overturned and, and, and changed. Um, so unless it's codified in the constitution, it could go back. And so I think there's a, I think there's a real fear of, um, the repeal of the repeal of gay marriage, um, You know, we did see some movement of uh, uh, restrictions of transgender people serving in the military uh, under the previous administration. Um, And of course, you see state by state um, things being passed. Um, And so I, I think it's just. The, so it's I kind of an awareness it's an awareness of vigilance it's awareness it's a it's an awareness I think or maybe even a hyper awareness of the rights that you think you have today you may not have tomorrow see I don't think that with gay marriage though
0: I could see with the transgender thing um but I think that's also a bit of a different this is just me talking but I mean yeah. I feel like that's a bit of a different issue but I think the gay marriage thing I think that you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube there's so many second and third order effects that come with that. I, I don't. I don't know how anyone could reverse that. I mean, I you know, you, outside of the Taliban taking over and putting down you know some sort of law, um, but even then, I, it's almost unenforceable. I, I would. I would think at this point, I feel like that that ship has sailed. I feel like no five, one. Six years ago, that. I would
1: have. Five six years ago, I would have agreed with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've, we've seen some shit that I was like, I don't think I would have ever dreamed I would see that in the United States of America. Uh, with and, what?
0: What do you think? What are you thinking of?
1: Uh, well, I mean, uh, so I, I certainly never expected uh, Roe Ray versus Wade. Um, Although we do
0: know that, like, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg was like, look, it's not great law. It should be legislated state by state. You could argue that's a procedural change as uh, opposed to a substantive change as to whether or not it's the right thing to do. Right. Yeah. And that's where I think it's a difference with the gay marriage thing. It's like, well, procedurally, Yes. Oberfell and all that. And like, okay, there's laws that were passed and what have you, but, but also that's such a, what are you going to do? <laughs> people are married now. Like they're not going anywhere. I hate to say, I'm, I'm trying to think if I should even say this, cause it's going to sound harsh, but it's like an aborted baby is an an abor- like, that's a one-time event. I, yeah. I I don't know how else to say that. It's just, it's, it's a one-time thing. So theoretically you could put a line in the sand and say, okay, no more of that. But with marriage, it's like, what are you going to do? Like all these people are married. Like, what do you do you can't stop people you know what it's unenforceable i think i don't know i i see like i see that's why i I just think there's this is me just talking and i'm hardly the dispossessive authority on this but it seems to me like that that should be i think there's certain things that i can't see changing but i don't know but i'm interested i mean i'm asking the question i'm just talking out loud
1: so yeah i i think it's just the fear um i think it's the Mm -hmm. fear that that um you know that there's there's no conversation about overturning heterosexual marriage right right um but but there's still the what if um cuz i don't think there's a conversation
0: about overturning gay marriage though now do you hear that anywhere
1: oh yeah oh yeah really
0: oh yeah okay i've not heard of that okay i mean yeah. i don't know that i would have but okay yeah yeah
1: i was not aware uh un- un- unfortunately um, and, and even coming from sitting Supreme court judges that say, well, maybe we should relook at just like we did with Roe versus Wade.
0: Do you think, I, and I'm asking, cause I, this is not something I've looked into with, so I, I really don't know the answers to this. Is that a procedural thing as well? Or is that, is that because there's some substantive issue?
1: Uh, I, I think it, it starts as a, um, I don't like this. Sure. And then becomes sure. a how do we procedurally change it? I mean, obviously you would have to have some some individuals or groups of individuals or organization or whatever that that has standing um that somehow they they are harmed by this. Yeah.
0: Um I see I don't yeah, I just I mean even if if that were to happen, I guess I guess I can't think that any state that if that were to go to referendum, anybody would stop that. Like, I feel like, okay, procedurally, fine. You don't want the law. We just have to legislate state by state. I, I feel like I feel like that that cat's out of the bag. I, I don't know. That that's my feeling. And yeah. again, I'm I'm no authority on this. I'm just speaking extemporaneously. Um, not to make this suddenly this became like the gay rights issue. I didn't I didn't mean to like make that <laughs> this whole episode. I'm like, I, I want to talk about a whole bunch of other stuff, but I, I will say it's interesting because um, we don't get to talk about this stuff on the show that often. And uh, and I actually, if you're cool with it, and I don't want to pimp you out on the spot, but um, can you? are you comfortable talking at all about what happened at the end of your military career and how that unspooled and what that meant? And I guess not just to rehash it and wallow in the gory details necessarily, but what are the takeaways from it? And what what were the takeaways for you and then for the veteran community in general that you learned from that?
1: Yeah. So uh, without going into into too much details, just uh, what just a little too many times drinking and driving. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, I I was out by myself because um, I I. You know, what wasn't going out to converse with people about what was going on, yeah. uh, sort of thing. And and eventually being like, Yeah, um, uh, there's one one too many times and, and you need you need to go. Uh huh. either before or after your next look for promotion, uh, because promotion ain't happening. Um at that point, how many years in did you have? Uh 12. Yeah. Um so you know, I mean theoretically, it is the point where you either decide to stay or decide to go um you know you either make it a career or not so i I kind of helped myself make that decision with some some bad decisions yeah, yeah. um you know i I will say I was very fortunate that I had friends um in the outside world in government contracting that um overlooked it. Um, And so I was able to get into a career um, outside of it and have a little bit of of time um, to figure out what it was I wanted to do outside of the military. Um, And, and, you know, you get to the point where, uh, uh, again, it's the I think the mentality is, you know, you you go to school, you go to college or you join the military, you rise up through the ranks or you go to college and you get this job and you stay with a job and and at a certain point you retire. Um, you know, from the military you retire younger than you would from a job and then you take mm-hmm. your government contracting job and right. and then eventually you you retire. Um, but everything is based off of that career progression as opposed to life and interests and passions um and so i'm i'm very fortunate to be in a job that not only pays well but um also speaks to my passion of of helping um members of the military community um and so you know being able to to find that can
0: we talk about that because that i mean it definitely jumps out a whole bunch uh when i'm just going through your bio You know, it's, you've done so much for the veteran community Um, from the veterans career program to the veteran business outreach center, all this different, all these different programs you've done. Why has there been that lasting commitment to the military? You didn't have a reason to turn back. You did 12 years. I mean, you don't have anything to be ashamed about, uh, no matter how it ended. You did your time.
1: Why? Why turn back? Uh, I I, I think at. Uh, at first, it was feeling like I had let my brothers and sisters in the military down mm-hmm. by how things went. Um, and so, wanting to uh, make some amends there. Um, but now it's also at the point where it's like, yeah, so I, you know, I've got a good 15, 16, 17 years. So, I, I'm basically into a second career, right? So, I, I have as much or not more time as a civilian after the military than I did in the military. Um, and I've done again, uh, I I mean, I went back to school and got my MBA. I was unemployed. I was partially employed. I did government contracting with a six figure job and Hmm. nonprofit for a very low, uh, figured uh, type of thing. And I've done the art, I've done the storytelling. I still travel and everything. Um, And so being able to, when somebody asks a question about what should I do after the military, and being able to say, well, um, anything you want to. Um, Because, again, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up. Yeah and so being able to say you know well this is my experience going back to school or this is my experience being unemployed or this is my experience with government contracting um i joke that i w- i am more than happy to teach anybody how to do government contracting so i do not have to um so i you know i teach classes on that or the small business aspect of things um i'm i'm really finding the small business aspect even though it's something we really just started within the the veterans career program um but I have veterans who have uh MS and and other spinal cord injuries who um are just like I I don't know what I can do and you know being able to say well um it might not be the same for everybody but you can still start a business um or or you know you can still have a career um and and part of it is uh, demystifying, uh, especially with employers, um, what someone with a spinal cord injury and disease can do within their company. Because mm. um, I still to this day, even though there are these stories all over the place, uh, I have people going, "Yeah, but you know." So, I mean, they can do They can do a telemarketing job, right? And, and it's like, well, if, if that's what they want to do, yeah, but they're also engineers and RNs and, you know, cybersecurity experts and, and you know, all of these other jobs um, with some modifications to them uh, that they're doing. Um, and so I, I think a part of it has to do with just taking all of this accumulated experience um, and, and saying, yeah, anything's possible. Do you see yourself as an artist? No, not yet. Why not? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I don't. I, I I mean, I I still just joke with people that I'm like, you know, um some days I move to throw paint at a canvas, and some days that paint looks like something that somebody would like to buy. Uh, but I I do not consider myself an artist. Um I think I'm very close to being able to. I mean, I know it's on my LinkedIn profile and and my resume that that I'm an artist. Um, but I just and again, it goes back to I, I see other people who are more successful, if you will. They have mm-hmm. art openings and in their name and everything, and it's like, yeah, that's an artist. But just like with anything, success is what you define it as, not what somebody else defines it as. So. You know, the fact that I have performed at the Lincoln Theater, um, somebody would probably say that's, that's a, a sign of success. Um, they don't typically let you get up on the Lincoln Theater stage and, and perform. Um, one of my favorite things to do, and it's opening this coming weekend, uh, down at the Torpedo, Torpedo Factory, one of mm. the smaller galleries, the Target Gallery does a, it's called the March 150, um, and they sell like 150 panels and artists decorate them and then give them back for donation and people buy them for $150 a pound. And for the last seven, eight years, I've donated a panel. Um, only once have I had somebody buy it. I'm I'm very optimistic that the two panels that I painted this year are going to sell. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I, I think I'm getting close to the point where I would feel comfortable saying I'm an artist. Maybe after our show in April. (laughs)
0: Well, the reason I'm asking is it's funny while you're talking and I'm hearing about, you know, the work you put into advocating for veterans. And in this case, you know, we're talking, you're talking about veterans have MS and veterans have illnesses and spinal cord injuries and and things that are really hard to get over. And I feel like that's something that the civilian arts community. um. I'm trying to say this without sounding like I'm dinging them for it. It, There's a necessary degree of narcissism. I think one has to have to be an artist because if you don't care about your art, nobody else is going to give a shit about it. So it does make you have to be very devoted to it. That said, what I find with veteran artists is because of the, their veteran status, there always seems to be a, a greater picture their aperture is too wide, so they have a natural empathy towards certain causes, certain uh, lines of effort that they want to keep doing. And that sometimes, I think, in veteran artists' minds stops them from considering the, considering themselves to be artists because they go, well, I'm not out here. just, I'm not Basquiat. I'm not just out here doing this all myself. It's like, well, no. But in a lot of ways, I think it also makes the art deeper and have more resonance because it's not solipsistic. It is. A sense of hey, there's a bigger world out here, and there's some real fucked up problems out here, and yes, I, but there's also a place for this beautiful thing that I'm trying to create, and maybe it t- touches on that, maybe it doesn't, but that's valid too. But then I'm also aware it's not the end all be all of life, right? And th- and there's that sense of proportion, and I feel like um, just listening to you say that, I was like, you know, what you just said, I can't imagine that anyone that's ever showed at the Guggenheim would have said that. Would have been talking about, well, so here are these veterans with MS and you got to do the, like, that isn't the way that there, that so many artists worldview works. But I think that's one of the many unique things that veteran artists bring to their art is that holistic sense of a problem set and of the world, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: We're typically doing something else as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and we're used to it, you know, because there's always, uh, I think with a lot of veteran artists, there's always been that art bubbling up. But it's like, yeah, but I can't. I am making a paycheck doing a different job right now. So it bubbles up and I yeah. either indulge it or whatever, but then it has to subside and I gotta get on with this. Yeah, no, I think I think that yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting hearing that. And yeah, I do think you're an artist. I think you're uh and I haven't even seen your your painting. But we gotta talk more about that. Did you study? Or is this uh, all uh, just what you like?
1: Uh just you know uh an art league class here and there mm-hmm. um but didn't never studied um again it's one of those things that's it's just i i do what i like um and most of it just stays hidden <laughs> when you do it do you
0: feel like it does what you wanted it to do though do you feel like you're mastering the craft of it
1: yeah i i i find that um Sometimes it is very difficult to bring the or not bring the military OCD side Mm
0: -hmm. uh,
1: to to the artwork Mm -hmm. um, and just kind of letting things flow and everything. But once I do get to that state where I I am just letting. uh, So Michelangelo always said the the sculpture was within the marble. I just released it. Um, And so it's the same of, um, you know. Just letting go and letting the paint and my, you know, muscle memory of what it was I want to paint um, take over, then then I feel like it it accomplishes what what I want it to accomplish. And what the, the weirdest thing about it is, at least for me, whether it's the writing or the painting or anything, is I will struggle for the longest time with how uh, I want to do it because it needs to be perfect. Mm. Uh, And I will struggle for the longest, longest time. And then just I'll wake up one morning and in 15, 20 minutes accomplish what I had been brooding over for for two years Yeah, uh, Yeah. type of thing. So um, which is interesting because that is not the advice I give. (laughs) Other people, I'm like, hey, do all the sketches you want to make the mistakes. Nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to care. And then I am the biggest hypocrite because I, you know, even my sketches have to be perfect. Wow. Really? Oh, yeah. Fuck. Do you have
0: work that is shit that you let yourself be shit that you go? Yep. I'm just going to do this and I'm going to forcefully try to overcome that impulse.
1: Yeah, so so I am okay with um one journal containing the shit. <laughs> um so I have a journal that's like I'll I'll I, I allow myself to write whatever, draw whatever or whatever in that one journal. Um, but anything beyond that, um probably not. So, I it's like it's it's like yeah. you and I have talked about taking the story and changing the perspective so that we get the three perspectives for the for the April show and mm-hmm. and you know, was on vacation last week, um didn't do a lick of writing, uh really. um but I, the idea is in the head. uh and and within the next week or two, it's gonna spew out um and and be able to knock it out and and everything like that.
0: I'm just thinking. Let's let's talk about the show. Let's bring everybody in on this because this will be a nice plug for the show. They can see that sausage actually being made here. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So it's so funny because now it, it, uh, this is why I love doing this show. Now I have so much greater understanding of where Dancing in the Dark came from. Yeah. Right. And because um, I'll tell you the number one question I had when I read it is like, why is he telling the story of an army infantryman? But now I think I can see why you chose to have an infantryman go through those experiences, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so then, yeah, then the practical problem we ran into is I was like, okay, I need three different perspectives to marry this up. But then, you know what I forgot? And I guess it was yesterday, the day before, for some reason, I was looking up your name in my email and I saw the poems and I don't know where those, came. you sent those to the blog. I don't know where those came from, but I'm like seeing them. I'm like, God damn, I thought I had poems. from
1: No, John. I had. So when you had mentioned the show, I sent you that and Dancing in the Dark as just like, hey, here's a sample of my material. I don't know how I
0: see. I saw. I see Dancing in the Dark in the email. I I don't know how I brain farted or didn't see the poems, but I'm like. Wait, hold on. Oh, wait, what poetry? Hey, wait, we got stuff. Right. I was like, and I was like, well, I'm going to talk to him tomorrow, so I'll, I'll, I can stop the presses then. But I was like, um, I talked with Dex, and I was like, you know what, we could even do is we could potentially juxtapose it where you can do uh, prose or a narr or part of the the actual f- fictional narrative, and then pivot to poetry, and then back to prose, and then she can go poetry to compliment you narrative prose and then back to poetry right. or her third or something like that. Like yeah. there's, there's ways we can mix and match the form. Um Cause I was like, God, this, the, the poetry works too. So I think, I think, yeah, when it comes to building the show, look, if you've got ideas on how to break apart the perspective, God bless. And I don't want to, I just want to play the hot hand. I want to yeah. make it as easy on you and wherever you're feeling juiced up. You know, if you're like, Hey, I'm, I'm seeing this, then let's go with that. But the poetry's good. I mean, the poetry's got a home, you know. Uh, so I don't know. We got, there's stuff to play with here. Yeah. Well, How do so you feel?
1: interestingly enough, with Dancing in the Dark, I, I, um, uh, every, most everything I had written up to this point, when I was a little kid, I wrote a lot of fiction. Um, but most things have been nonfiction. And I was taking a creative writing nonfiction, uh, fic- sorry, fiction class. And the prompt, writing prompt was a blank who likes blank. And it, we were just supposed to list things out. And for some reason, I wrote a truck driver who likes ballet. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. is how that started. I love that. And that
0: comes through that first fucking story first segment yeah. is fucking dynamite
1: and that was and and by the time that class ended it was a 6 week class the the story ended with the truck going off the highway mm. and everybody in my class was like no that cannot be the end of that story right mm. and so the second part uh of going through recovery was written and then and that's what got submitted to uh Journal of Veteran um studies um that's going to get published right and that's the first In, two segments then the first uh, uh okay a condensed version of the first two okay all right and then eventually wrote the third act of that um and and gotcha. i finally felt at the end of the third act that i was like okay this story is now complete it it is i'll tell you what i didn't like about the third act <laughs>
0: Because because I'm love I, if you're cool with it because I love I are you cool with this? But we can cut oh, yeah, this. no, like no, no, go right ahead. Because I, I, because what I because and hearing your personal story, I I get it. But here's here's what I didn't like is I was like a trucker who likes ballet who then discovers that he's gay is not as interesting to me as a trucker because that's because then he's making all the slurs all the stuff that was said about him early on just oh okay, well, that's who I was. And so then it's like, well, what's the resistance to him accepting that? Well, it's just whatever his own internal blindness or whatever to the fact. But then it's actually very straightforward and predictable. To me, I was like, well, the trucker that likes ballet is interesting, especially if he's not gay, because then it's like, oh, well, there's not that obvious attraction. It's a different kind of attraction. And that to me is more interesting. That said, I think there's absolutely room in it for a love story. Yeah. And and, because correct me if I'm wrong. And I mean, seriously, correct me if I'm wrong because I'm completely spitballing here. But it seems to me like you want to tell the love story, right? Is that 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 that, it's not just a culmination of that story, but there's also a part of you that is that is really motivated to tell a love story.
1: Yeah. There's definitely more. There's definitely more of me in the third part than in the first two. I wonder. I. I mean, again, and I,
0: you've you've been thinking about it and all that. So I don't want to detract from where your head's at. I'll I'll just throw out there. I'm wondering if that is if there's something standalone-ish with that Quite that we possible. can do, because then if you change perspective, right? We have a different protagonist that fits the theme. Yeah, and it's and it's a different um, and it and it fully tells that piece. Because that that I think is yeah, that's fucking each piece individually is dynamite. Putting them together, that was my old, that was my only thought as I was like, oh, okay, yeah. What do we have to do to amp up the unpredictability?
1: Yeah. Does that kind of make sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and it's again, it's kind of interesting. I was thinking about so the first section of flipping the perspective and telling it from Earl's perspective. Mm-hmm. who is who is interesting the, who is the despicable character yeah. and i'm yeah. like god how do i how do i write like a despicable character but you know not make it so obvious that you need to despise him right because he doesn't think he's despicable he doesn't think he's despicable. right yeah he probably thinks he's doing a favor and you know uh type of thing and so it's um that that's a perspective i'm interested in. Um, I'm always I, I,
0: I, I, my my sense. Yeah, I'm I'm just slightly toying with the with some of the stuff that you wrote. But my sense with Earl is, I wonder how much he wants companionship.
1: I think that's exactly what it is. Right,
0: he wants that camaraderie, and he's just approaching it in all the wrong ways. Yeah. Yep.
1: No, I, I that's think-
0: fucking interesting, man.
1: That's fucking interesting. And see, that's why I like art so much yeah, is because you can do with it whatever you want yeah
0: yeah a thousand percent a thousand percent do you think you could have written that five six years ago no no nope. why not
1: I don't think well I I think first off Um, I look back at some of my writing and I probably would have been a very good reporter (laughs) Uh um, because I could tell a story along the lines of the facts. Mm. um, But anything that had to do with the personal aspect of things, um, I I wasn't able to do. Um, And so now that, now that, uh, basically I, I've put my emotions out there, mm. uh, into the world. It's like, I, I can express emotions in writing fiction. Um, so no, a couple, couple of years ago, I would not have been able to write that. Interesting. Before I forget, should we,
0: uh, cause I did want to pick up the thread on the art. Should we think about you doing art? Is that a possibility? Do you do live art? Would you do live art? Do you have any interest in doing live art?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um it's not going to be good uh because it's always the the first, you know, well I say that and and that's not, you know, that's just that's my bias against myself. Um but yeah, absolutely. I I um uh, so funny enough a couple of years ago, um uh, you know, they do uh, at, at Old Town Alexandria used to shut down part of King Street and do art uh an art fest it's hmm. since moved to a different, more secluded area. Um, but a business along King Street there had said, um, hey, we'd, we'd love to have an artist do something during Arts Fest, maybe hang some of their artwork, do a live demonstration. I reached out to all my small business owners and I, that I knew were artists. And I said, hey, here's an opportunity for you to put your art up during Arts Fest. There's going to be tens of thousands of people in Alexandria you could even do uh, a live demonstration or whatever not a not a single taker really and so I was like well wow. screw it I've got artwork um I'm gonna make some money off of it um so I hung my artwork and I did a live demonstration and and I did a uh uh I did a lottery that I was like, for this live painting that I'm doing $250, put your name in the hat, um, and and sold it. Um so it actually it badass. Yeah, it was fun. It was so, so yes, I I could potentially do that as well. Do you do do you do what would you feel comfortable
0: doing live? Portraiture? Something inspired by a prompt? Something abstract?
1: Portraiture. Okay. Maybe abstract. I, I mean, it really would be one of those things where it's like, once I know, uh, or have an idea of it, then I can kind of prep myself mentally and with, with the, the work, but yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. We got to think about that. Yeah. We got to think about how to,
1: uh, yeah. plus a lot of it, you know, like I said, I've just, you know, realized that a lot of the art emerges once you, uh, I, I don't, I think it's Frank Gehry who says, um, the first, the first pen stroke is the hardest mm-hmm. uh and mine is the the you know going from a pristine canvas to putting that first swipe of paint but once that's done it's like yeah well i'm committed now the the the, the pristine canvas has been destroyed uh i can do with it whatever i want um so part oh. of it would emerge from that
0: buck okay so i'm trying to think if i should If I'm working to give anything away or not, well, what the fuck? Let's give it away. Let's challenge everybody who listens to this can come to the fucking show and then act not surprised because they'll have heard this. If this works, you know what I'm wondering? Because Dex paints also. I'm wondering if we put a canvas down on the ground. And both of you are. Sound like both of you are working on something while Chris Battles is working on his portraiture. So mm. both of you are working off the same piece. And that way while one's writing, the other's painting, while one's one's or sorry, one's talking, the other's painting, and vice versa. Yeah. And we kind of pivot back and forth. Except we if it's either on the ground or if it's something that it's it's obscured from us. So we see you painting, but all we see is Chris and what he's uh illustrating. And at the end we see what you guys have created. And we see what Chris has created.
1: Yeah, you could even have a large canvas on an easel, but faced away from the yeah. audience. Yeah, with Chris is the other other direction. Yeah, yeah there's something. And, and there for the audience, this on. is uh, this is April. Oh, I'll do all
0: the plugs in the intro. Do all the yeah, yeah, I'll plug the shit out of it. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean we're we're whoring ourselves out every conceivable way we can. So yeah, I'll, I'll um we'll we'll definitely do that, dude. This is going to be badass though. I'm really really excited this is um yeah, this is very cool. so theoretically I told Chris we'd get him the script by the 15th of March um we can we have we go I did it early so that we'd give ourselves some breathing room um but we're we're getting close man we're getting really close to having that thing put together that's gonna be freaking badass well I anyway, think nothing
1: else at least at this point um you could just send him dancing in the dark. Um, because something's gonna something in there is gonna be based around it. Yeah. And then obviously I can modify and, and work with decks. And- he'll he'll be fine. He'll be fine. We'll we'll, we'll work we'll work it up. Well, I, I'm not super worried
0: about it. I mean, as long as we're ballpark, you know, on that timeline, I think it'll work. Um, okay, we're probably getting super in the weeds now, and people are like, Okay, guys, enough. <laughs> Fucking tell me something that's gonna apply to my life. Uh dude, this is a blast. Charles, tell everybody where they should be following you. Because I want to get your fucking Instagram account bigger. Not that you necessarily want it to be. It seems like you're very comfortable just going. nope, this is this is just what it is. Just me here. But I feel uh, I, as a promoter, I, I feel like do, I should make it bigger.
1: I do want to do more, but I, uh, I I certainly just also enjoy posting photos of great cheeseburgers that I have uh, <laughs> wherever I go. Um, which, by the way, if if you have seen the movie The Menu, I did not uh, see it, but raisin, I saw your post on it. Uh, I I now feel justified uh, in finding the best cheeseburger uh, wherever I go. Um, Is that the point of that? Is that the point of the movie? Is it it, it like a horror movie or something? It it is a, I would call it a psychological thriller.
0: Okay. All right. But it's all based on the premise of finding the greatest cheeseburger?
1: Uh, Not until the end.
0: Oh, okay. Do we just give a spoiler out for the menu? Is that what just Uh, happened? I'll put a trigger it, warning or spoiler warning in there for everybody.
1: Um so it is it is an exclusive restaurant um that you have to be invited to um and I think there's only like 15 people or whatever that are invited to this party. Right. And then and then every dish has a theme but unfortunately tonight's menu or the the menu of the night that we see has to do with um, bad things that the people who are in attendance have done, um, and right. and the chef, the chef and the crew taking their revenge on all the people um, who have shit on the um, service community over the years. <laughs> ah, ah. It seems like it'd be a good dark comedy if they wanted to go that way. There's some um, there. There is some humor to it uh, right. as well. It, it's. Uh, I'd hope. All right, hey Charles, tell people what do they need to follow you. Uh, I, you know, What's what? I'm Instagram trying account. to look up my Instagram account. So, you know, so I may, I may probably, actually have it up. Probably Instagram is the best. Um, I'm realizing that there are a lot of Charles McCaffrey's on Instagram. I bet I've got it right here. I'm betting because
0: I had you punched up a couple of days ago. Oh, no. Aren't you Charles McCaffrey? I think you're just Charles McCaffrey, aren't you?
1: Uh, It, it may I be like, like 1970. Okay. You see? So
0: I think we found I think I think we found the litmus test to being a professional artist. If you know your Instagram handle right off the top of your head, then you're clearly <laughs> <laughs> in that place. Um here, I'll punch this up. No, you're McCaffrey Charles. There we go. McCaffrey dot charles. All right. And so no assuming, numbers, right? No numbers. No. No, just McCaffrey.charles. So badass. Dude, this is a blast, man. I had so much fun talking. Thanks for doing this. I I appreciate the opportunity. Well, to be continued, and uh, especially on April 13th, but even above and beyond that. Dude, it's a blast, brother. Let's talk real soon. Sounds good. That was Charles McCaffrey's profile in Havoc. Oh, man. Was that not a unique episode? Never thought we'd go down... All the rabbit holes who went down. I hope you guys uh, were cool hearing the behind-the-scenes stuff of how we're putting together Savage Wonder Run. So, again, April 13th, go to SavageWonder.com, get tickets. SavageWonder.com, SavageWonder.com, go get tickets. It's going to be a badass show. Anyway, I uh, really enjoyed it. I I love Charles's work so much more, knowing the man behind it. Um, I wouldn't have had him... I wouldn't have invited him to do Savage if I didn't like just what his work was lying on the page, but man, there's no substitute for just fucking talking to people. Um, really appreciated, um, his honesty, his transparency. Um, you know, yeah, my, my really, really cool conversation. Anyway, sorry, just remembering all the things we talked about. Very, very cool time. Okay. Enough on that. I started off this episode by thanking our this episode's first sponsor, Second Mission Foundation. Now I'm going to thank this episode's other sponsor, which is my own Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a nonprofit 501c3 organization, which provides veterans a talented veterans, I should say. Not every veteran, only talented ones, a pro a platform from which to create compelling live theater and events. Like Savage Wonderground. So, April 13th, it's a Thursday night, 6 p.m., at the Principal Gallery in Old Town, Alexandria. It is going to be four veteran artists Dex, Marine Corps poet, Charles McCaffrey, who you just met, Navy veteran and storyteller, Logan Vath, Navy veteran and a singer songwriter, and Christopher Battles, the Marine Corps artist in residence, they are going to put together an immersive show where we're going to follow three characters, the thief, the warrior and the lover. And we're going to follow them through the principal gallery and we're going to have an interweaving story with those three characters. It's going to be so fucking badass. I cannot even tell you. i um, really excited for you guys to hear it, see it. Um, Be part of it. So come on out. Plus we give you like champagne and we got like a grazing table there. It's the best fucking 20 bucks you'll ever spend. So come on out. SavageWonder.com. That's where you go to get tickets. SavageWonder.com. You can get them at VetRep.org also, which is the VetRep website. So if you're used to that, go to VetRep.org. But the easy one that we have just for these kind of Savage Wonder events is SavageWonder.com. So go to SavageWonder.com. Get your tickets. We cannot wait to see you there. Okay. I need to thank... This episode's producer, Mike Neal, for putting all this together. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of Charles McCaffrey. See you next time. We will dive further into another veteran's profile in Havoc.